Chapter 46 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 46 The Crusades and the Age of Papal Dominion. It is interesting to note that Charlemagne corresponded with the Caliph Harun al Rashid, the Harun al Rashid of the Arabian Nights. It is recorded that Harun al Rashid sent ambassadors from Baghdad which had now replaced Damascus as the Moslem capital, with a splendid tent, a water-clock, an elephant, and the keys of the Holy Sepulchre. This latter present was admirably calculated to set the Byzantine Empire and this new Holy Roman Empire by the ears, as to which was the proper protector of the Christians in Jerusalem. These presents remind us that while Europe in the ninth century was still a weltering disorder of war and pillage. There flourished a great Arab empire in Egypt and Mesopotamia, far more civilized than anything Europe could show. Here literature and science still lived, the arts flourished, and the mind of man could move without fear or superstition. And even in Spain and North Africa, where the Saracenic dominions were falling into political confusion, there was a vigorous intellectual life. Aristotle was read and discussed by these Jews and Arabs during these centuries of European darkness. They guarded the neglected seeds of science and philosophy. Northeast of the Caliph's dominions was a number of Turkish tribes. They had been converted to Islam, and they held the faith much more simply and fiercely than the actively intellectual Arabs and Persians to the south. In the tenth century the Turks were growing strong and vigorous, while the Arab power was divided and decaying. The relations of the Turks to the empire of the Caliphate became very similar to the relations of the Medes to the last Babylonian empire fourteen centuries before. In the eleventh century a group of Turkish tribes, the Seljuk Turks, came down into Mesopotamia and made the Caliph their nominal ruler, but really their captive and tool. They conquered Armenia. Then they struck at the remnants of the Byzantine power in Asia Minor. In 1071, the Byzantine army was utterly smashed at the Battle of Melisgird, and the Turks swept forward until not a trace of Byzantine rule remained in Asia. They took the fortress of Nicaea over against Constantinople and prepared to attempt that city. The Byzantine Emperor Michael the Seventh was overcome with terror. He was already heavily engaged in warfare with a band of Norman adventurers who had seized Durazzo, and with a fierce Turkish people, the Pechenegs, who were raiding over the Danube. In his extremity he sought help where he could, and it is notable that he did not appeal to the Western Emperor, but to the Pope of Rome as the head of Latin Christendom. He wrote to Pope Gregory VII, and his successor Alexius Comenus wrote still more urgently to Urban II. This was not a quarter of a century from the rupture of Latin and Greek churches. That controversy was still vividly alive in men's minds, and this disaster to Byzantium must have presented itself to the Pope as a supreme opportunity for reasserting the supremacy of the Latin church over the dissentient Greeks. Moreover, 
this occasion gave the Pope a chance to deal with two other matters that troubled Western Christendom very greatly. One was the custom of private war, which disordered social life, and the other was the superabundant fighting energy of the low Germans and Christianized Northmen, and particularly of the Franks and Normans. A religious war, the Crusade, the War of the Cross, was preached against the Turkish captors of Jerusalem, and a truce to all warfare amongst Christians. 1095. The declared object of this war was the recovery of the Holy Sepulchre from the unbelievers. A man called Peter the Hermit carried on a popular propaganda throughout France and Germany on broadly democratic lines. He went clad in a coarse garment, barefooted on an ass. He carried a huge cross, and harangued the crowd in street or marketplace or church. He denounced the cruelties practiced upon the Christian pilgrims by the Turks, and the shame of the holy sepulchre being in any but Christian hands. The fruits of centuries of Christian teaching became apparent in their response. A great wave of enthusiasm swept the Western world, and popular Christendom discovered itself. Such a widespread uprising of the common people in relation to a single idea as now occurred was a new thing in the history of our race. There is nothing to parallel it in the previous history of the Roman Empire or of India or China. On a smaller scale, however, there had been similar movements amongst the Jewish people after their liberation from the Babylonian captivity and later on Islam was to display a parallel susceptibility to collective feeling. Such movements were certainly connected with the new spirit that had come into life with the development of the missionary teaching religions. The Hebrew prophets, Jesus and his disciples, Manny, Muhammad, were all exhorters of men's individual souls. They brought the personal conscience face to face with God, before that time, religion had been much more a business of fetish, of pseudoscience, than of conscience. The old kind of religion turned upon temple, initiated priest and mystical sacrifice, and ruled the common man like a slave by fear. The new kind of religion made a man of him. The preaching of the First Crusade was the first stirring of the common people in European history. It may be too much to call it the birth of modern democracy, but certainly at that time modern democracy stirred. Before very long we shall find it stirring again, and raising the most disturbing social and religious questions. Certainly this first stirring of democracy ended very pitifully and lamentably. Considerable bodies of common people, crowds rather than armies, set out eastward from France and the Rhineland and Central Europe, without waiting for leaders or proper equipment to rescue the Holy Sepulchre. This was the People's Crusade. Two great mobs blundered into Hungary, mistook the recently converted Magyars for pagans, committed atrocities and were massacred. A third multitude with a similarly confused mind, after a great pogrom of the Jews in the Rhineland, marched eastward, and was also destroyed in Hungary. Two other huge crowds, under the leadership of Peter the Hermit himself, reached Constantinople, crossed the Bosphorus, and were massacred rather than defeated by the Seljuk Turks. 
so began and ended this first movement of the European people, as people. Next year, 1097, the real fighting forces crossed the Bosphorus. Essentially, they were Norman in leadership and spirit. They stormed Nicaea, marched by much the same route as Alexander had followed fourteen centuries before, to Antioch. The siege of Antioch kept them a year, and in June 1099 they invested Jerusalem. It was stormed after a month's siege. The slaughter was terrible. Men riding on horseback were splashed by the blood in the streets. At nightfall on July 15th, the crusaders had fought their way into the church of this holy sepulchre and overcome all opposition there. Blood-stained, weary, and sobbing from excess of joy, they knelt down in prayer. Immediately the hostility of Latin and Greek broke out again. The crusaders were the servants of the Latin church, and the Greek patriarch of Jerusalem found himself in a far worse case under the triumphant Latins than under the Turks. The crusaders discovered themselves between Byzantine and Turk and fighting both. Much of Asia Minor was recovered by the Byzantine Empire, and the Latin princes were left, a buffer between Turk and Greek, with Jerusalem and a few small principalities, of which Edessa was one of the chief in Syria. Their grip, even on the possessions, was precarious, and in 1144 Edessa fell to the Moslem, leading to an ineffective second crusade, which failed to recover Edessa, but saved Antioch from a similar fate. In 1169, the forces of Islam were rallied under a Kurdish adventurer named Saladin, who had made himself master of Egypt. He preached a holy war against the Christians, recaptured Jerusalem in 1187, and so provoked the Third Crusade. This failed to recover Jerusalem. In the Fourth Crusade, 1202-1204, the Latin Church turned frankly upon the Greek Empire, and there was not even a pretense of fighting the Turks. It started from Venice, and in 1204 it stormed Constantinople. The great rising trading city of Venice was the leader in this adventure, and most of the coasts and islands of the Byzantine Empire were annexed by the Venetians. A Latin emperor, Baldwin of Flanders, was set up in Constantinople, and the Latin and Greek church were declared to be reunited. The Latin emperors ruled in Constantinople from 1204 to 1261, when the Greek world shook itself free again from Roman predominance. The 12th century then, and the opening of the 13th, was the age of papal ascendancy, just as the 11th was the age of the ascendancy of the Seljuk Turks, and the 10th the age of the Norsemen. A united Christendom, under the rule of the Pope, came nearer to being a working reality than it ever was before or after that time. In those centuries a simple Christian faith was real and widespread over great areas of Europe. Rome itself had passed through some dark and discreditable phases. Few writers can be found to excuse the lives of Popes John the Eleventh and John the Twelfth in the tenth century. They were abominable creatures. But the heart and body of Latin Christendom had remained earnest and simple. The generality of the common priests and monks and nuns 
had lived exemplary and faithful lives. Upon the wealth of confidence such lives created rested the power of the Church. Among the great popes of the past had been Gregory the Great, Gregory the First, 590 to 604, and Leo III, 795 to 816, who invited Charlemagne to be Caesar and crowned him in spite of himself. Towards the close of the eleventh century there arose a great clerical statesman, Hildebrand, who ended his life as Pope Gregory the Seventh, ten seventy three to ten eighty five. Next but one after him came Urban the Second, ten eighty seven to ten ninety nine, the Pope of the First Crusade. These two were the founders of this period of papal greatness, during which the popes lorded it over the emperors. From Bulgaria to Ireland, and from Norway to Sicily, and Jerusalem, the Pope was supreme. Gregory II obliged the Emperor Henry IV to come in penitence to him at Canossa, and to await forgiveness for three days and nights in the courtyard of the castle, clad in sackcloth and barefooted to the snow. In 1176 at Venice, the Emperor Frederick, Frederick Barbarossa, knelt to Pope Alexander III and swore fealty to him. The great power of the Church in the beginning of the eleventh century lay in the wills and consciences of men. It failed to retain the moral prestige on which its power was based. In the opening decades of the fourteenth century it was discovered that the power of the Pope had evaporated. What was it that destroyed the naive confidence of the common people of Christendom in the Church, so that they would no longer rally to its appeal and serve its purposes. The first trouble was certainly the accumulation of wealth by the Church. The Church never died, and there was a frequent disposition on the part of dying, childless people to leave lands to the Church. Penitent sinners were exhorted to do so. Accordingly, in many European countries, as much as a fourth of the land became church property. The appetite for property grows with what it feeds upon. Already in the thirteenth century it was being said everywhere that the priests were not good men, that they were always hunting for money and legacies. The kings and princes disliked this alienation of property very greatly. In the place of feudal lords capable of military support, they found their land supporting abbeys and monks and nuns, and these lands were really under foreign dominion. Even before the time of Pope Gregory Seventh, there had been a struggle between the princes and the papacy over the question of investitures, the question, that is, of who should appoint the bishops. If that power rested with the pope and not the king, then the latter lost control, not only of the consciences of his subjects, but of a considerable part of his dominions. For also the clergy claimed exemption from taxation. They paid their taxes to Rome. And not only that, but the Church also claimed the right to levy a tax of one-tenth upon the property of the layman, in addition to the taxes he paid his prince. The history of nearly every country in Latin Christendom tells of the same phase in the eleventh century, a phase of struggle between monarch and pope, on the issue of investitures, and generally, it tells of a victory for the pope. 
he claimed to be able to excommunicate the prince to absolve his subjects from their allegiance to him to recognize a successor he claimed to be able to put a nation under an interdict and then nearly all priestly functions ceased except the sacraments of baptism confirmation and penance the priests could neither hold the ordinary services marry people nor bury the dead with these two weapons it was possible for the twelfth century popes to curb the most recalcitrant princes and over all the most restive peoples these were enormous powers and enormous powers are only to be used on extraordinary occasions the popes used them at last with a frequency that staled their effect within thirty years at the end of the twelfth century we find scotland france and england in turn under an interdict and also the popes could not resist the temptation to preach crusades against offending princes until the crusading spirit was extinct it is possible that if the church of rome had struggled simply against the princes and had had a care to keep its hold upon the general mind it might have achieved a permanent dominion over all christendom but the high claims of the pope were reflected as arrogance in the conduct of the clergy before the eleventh century the roman priests could marry they had close ties with the people among whom they lived they were indeed a part of the people gregory the seventh made them celibates he cut the priests off from too great an intimacy with the laymen in order to bind them more closely to rome but indeed he opened a fissure between the church and the commonalty the church had its own law courts cases involving not merely priests but monks students crusaders widows orphans and the helpless were reserved for the clerical courts and so were all matters relating to wills marriages and oaths and all cases of sorcery heresy and blasphemy whenever the layman found himself in conflict with the priest he had to go to a clerical court the obligations of peace and war fell upon his shoulders alone and left the priest free it is no great wonder that jealousy and hatred of the priests grew up in the christian world never did rome seem to realize that its power was in the consciences of common men it fought against religious enthusiasm which should have been its ally and it forced doctrinal orthodoxy upon honest doubt and aberrant opinion when the church interfered in matters of morality it had the common man with it but not when it interfered in matters of doctrine when in the south of france waldo taught a return to the simplicity of jesus in faith and life innocent the third preached a crusade against the waldenses waldo's followers and permitted them to be suppressed with fire sword rape and the most abominable cruelties when again saint francis of assisi eleven eighty one to twelve twenty six taught the imitation of christ and a life of poverty and service his followers the franciscans were persecuted scourged imprisoned and dispersed in thirteen eighteen four of them were burned alive at marseilles on the other hand the fiercely orthodox order of the dominicans founded by saint dominic eleven seventy to twelve twenty one was strongly supported by innocent the third 
who, with its assistance, set up an organization, the Inquisition, for the hunting of heresy and the affliction of free thought. So it was that the Church, by excessive claims, by unrighteous privileges, and by an irrational intolerance, destroyed that free faith of the common man, which was the final source of all its power. The story of its decline tells of no adequate foeman from without, but continually of decay from within. End of chapter 46